Hello everyone, I'm Emma Norris, the Director of Research at the Institute for Government. Welcome to this event where we'll be discussing the question, should all schools be academies? It's now a decade since Michael Gove passed legislation allowing all schools to convert to academy status and academies make up almost half of all schools in England, although notably more secondary schools than primary schools. In the school's white paper published in March, the government committed to all schools joining or having a plan to join an academy trust by 2030. So what are the benefits of being an academy? Does academisation really drive better performance? And where does this leave the role of local authorities? I'm delighted to be joined by a brilliant panel to discuss all this and more. We've got Sam Friedman, who is a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government and a senior advisor at ARC, amongst other education leadership roles. Sam previously advised Michael Gove at the Department of Education. And Sam is also the author of a recent IFG paper on what happened to the Gove reforms. And many of his recommendations appeared in the recent white paper. We've also got Joe Hallgarten, who's the Chief Executive at the Centre for Education and Youth. And um, he's formerly led education work at think tanks, the RSA and IPPR, and started his career as a primary school teacher. And we have Natalie Pereira, who is the Chief Executive of the Education Policy Institute. She's a director at a multi-academy trust, and Natalie was previously a civil servant in Cabinet Office and the Department of Education, where she led on school funding reform. So we're going to start with some opening remarks from each panellists. We'll then have about 15 minutes of discussion between us and then I'll make sure that I leave 20 minutes or so for audience questions. And we're now on the record and being live, screen, live streamed. Please do send in your questions as early as you like. You can post these in the Q&A function on the right hand side of your screen and it will be great when posting questions if you could include your name and where you're coming from for context. If you want to tweet about the event, please use the hashtag IFG Academies. OK, so Sam, I'm going to come to you first. You made the case for all schools being academies in your recent IFG paper. And um, can you set out your argument and tell us your thoughts on, on what the recent white paper had to say on all of this? Thanks very much, Emma, and good morning, everybody. Um, so I, I wanted to, I'm just going to focus on the fourth chapter of the white paper, um, which is the one that links to the, the document I wrote for the Institute uh, for Government. Um, and I think it's probably the only thing of important interest in the white paper. The first three chapters are largely a bunch of gimmicks and stuff that we already knew about. Um, so uh, I won't cover the cover the whole white paper, just the bit about academies. And what I wanted to do was talk about the three kind of big recommendations I made in my paper and how they've been translated across into the government's um, white paper. Obviously, the context for this is that academies which were introduced by Labour as a way of uh, taking over um, failing schools, what they consider to be failing schools and giving them to another sponsor and um, taking them out of local authority control um, was taken uh, on by Michael Gove uh, and, the, and the current government sort of supercharged. So we went from 200 academies in 2010 to now the case that 80% um, of secondary schools and 40% of primary schools are academies over half the children in the country are being educated in an academy so they've become the dominant or the majority model of education and will drift whatever I or anybody else thinks to becoming the dominant model over 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 the coming years um, so uh, what I would set out to do in, in my paper is to talk about how, uh, how well that's gone and what we know and what we don't know Bluntly, we don't know very much in terms of the evidence base. Uh, it wasn't like so many macro policies uh, here and in other countries. It wasn't set up in a way that allows us to to to, to sort of do a proper study that says 
you know, maths outperform other schools, uh, academies outperform other schools. We just don't know that the, the, the group of schools that went into multi-academy trusts were not randomised in any way. Some of them were the worst schools in the country previously. Um, some of them were very high performing. There's just no way we can disaggregate it and say um, we can prove this worked or, or, or didn't work. Um, but what we can say is that um, there's been this very large expansion. We have over a thousand multi-academy trusts. 86% of academies are now in a multi-academy trust. Most of them are still quite small, but increasingly they're getting bigger. Mm. Um, and we can see that some have been very successful and have done more or less the sort of what 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 um, I certainly had hoped would happen, which is that you've that, that they've they've scaled good practice across a group of schools and used the fact that they have that. Um, that sort of central control of education to 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 um, to drive improvement across a group. Others have done very little uh, or nothing at all. So my first recommendation was and my first set of recommendations. My my sort of big the the the, the big thing I think that has not gone well about about MAT reforms um, is the lack of regulation and a lack of clarity around the standards that MATs are supposed to be um, aspiring to. It doesn't there's there's nowhere that sets out what um, at the moment what a MAT is supposed to do. And if you don't have expectations, then you can't set standards. You can't regulate. You end up with a very um, mixed uh, level of quality across the system. So academies are strongly regulated on, on compliance, on governance, on financial compliance. Schools themselves are inspected by Ofsted, but MATs are not um, uh, at the moment uh, expected to do any specific thing in terms of school improvement, curriculum support, civic leadership in their area, any of these things. And the white paper's taken on this set of recommendations, agreed there needs to be a review of regulation, agreed there needs to be a single regulator of academies, and that there needs to be a set of standards. They've set out at a very high level what those standards will look like in the white paper, broadly aligned with, with what I think they should be. Um, there are some very big questions about how that's all going to be happen and be implemented. There's a lot of detail missing at the moment on all of that. But but broadly speaking, I think that's encouraging in the right direction and will give us a basis for um, for creating a sort of more coherent map based system with some clear expectations about what we expect these organizations to do. Um, the second set of recommendations, which is the title of this of this uh, session, was about moving to an all academy system. Um, my argument was this shouldn't be forced, um, but it sh the department should set a clear expectation that this should happen and should support and incentivise local authorities and schools to make it happen. I had three reasons why I thought it made sense to move to an all academy system. The first is it's just really messy to have two dual systems going at once. We have you know, still a, a half of schools in, 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 in the old local authority maintained system. We have half of schools in the academy system. Um, you have to have two sets of rules for everything, two sets of ways of doing everything um, to you know, it's confusing for parents. It's confusing for everyone in the system. So it makes sense to move to a single coherent system. But if that was the only reason I wouldn't have made the made the argument, because I think we can sometimes prize neatness for its own sake in policy. And while I do think there's a complexity argument, I don't think it's the only argument. The other two are probably more important. The first is I think it, the current situation leaves local authorities in a real limbo whereby they are slowly losing their schools. They lost quite a lot and now they're slowly losing the, the rest. They've been they've lost resourcing. Uh, they've lost most of their staff and capability on the school improvement side, or lots of them have. Um, and 
uh, it doesn't make any sense to, uh, to have a, an increasingly small rump of schools, particularly primary schools, uh, being operated by an increasingly low resourced and low capacity organisation. And if we free local authorities from that responsibility, um, then they can take on other responsibilities. Uh, they can take on a sort of champion for children role, um, which uh, because they're no longer running in any way, any schools, they can um, they have no conflict of interest. They can represent children and families across all the different trusts in their area. Um, and the government have um, uh, said that they want all schools to be academies by 2030. They haven't actually said they'll compel it, although I kind of suspect they would if it wasn't happening. Um, but they haven't actually said that they would. Um, they have talked about a new role for local authorities um, in the in the white paper, which gives them slightly more powers to, to fulfill this kind of vulnerable children function. Not as many powers as I would have given them. They haven't gone quite as far as I wanted. They haven't given any new oversight powers to local authority, which I think would have been really great. Um, but um, definitely a step in the right direction. My last argument, which is probably the most controversial one, is I, I still fundamentally believe the map model is a good idea. I think that um, logically, it makes much more sense to have um, schools in organisations where if they consistently fail over a very long period of time, they can be moved to other organisations and you couldn't do that under the old local authority uh, model. Ultimately, you can force a change of governance and leadership under a MAT system. You couldn't do that before. I think that is a good thing. I also still very much believe that if MATs are properly regulated, that this 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 idea that they can scale good practice across a group of schools remains true uh, and remains much more true than individual schools essentially operating themselves within a sort of loose maintained local authority structure. So I do still absolutely buy the initial argument. I think it hasn't been particularly well implemented, uh, which is why we've got too many underperforming rounds. Um, and then the final thing I, 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 I sort of said is, is not necessarily immediately, but over time, we need to think about um, a system which gets where everyone's in a mat, every school is in a mat, uh, and you get, um, uh, it becomes too top down, essentially the individual school no longer has any legal presence um, and uh, you, you'll very, become very dependent on government regulation in order to um, ensure uh, standards within the system, which I think it can happen, but I think I'd like another mechanism as well. This is one of the reasons why I suggested local authority oversight, but it also I suggested that that there should be a backstop power for individual schools to leave mats and go to uh, and ask to go to another mat if they felt they'd be better off under a different mat. That would have to be approved. They couldn't sort of just walk away. That would obviously bring too much uh, risk because they, any time a map tried to improve a school, the school could just walk away. So I don't think that should happen, but I do think there should be a backstop power that allows schools to move between mats because they think there would be one that was better for them. That would require a legislative change to give some kind of legal power to the individual school again. They have again taken that on. I was quite surprised actually to see that that was um, taken on in the white paper. It, there's only a line that just says exceptional circumstances. Good, we, we will look to allow good schools to apply to the regulator to move to a, a different mat of their choice. Um, so we'll see. And I think that's been I don't think Matt's have taken very well to that suggestion on the whole. Um, so we'll see how that develops and plays out. But um, uh, I, I think it ultimately it is quite important that there is some legal power vested in the individual school um, that allows them to 
to put some pressure upwards as well as there being a lot of pressure downwards in the system as well. Um, I'm sure we'll have lots more time to discuss all the things. I've whisked through it all very quickly um, in my five minutes, but uh, that I'll leave it there for now. Brilliant. Thank Brilliant. you, Sam. Um, Natalie, I'm going to come to you next. You're the director of a multi-academy trust, AMAT, um, and you've written lots in this space and have lots of experience. What do you make of the arguments that Sam has made and of the white paper's proposals? Thank you, Emma. Um, so as ever, uh, Sam sets out very logical reasons to encourage all schools to join a mat. And I use the word encourage because I agree with Sam that this should be uh, a series of nudges rather than um, forcing all schools to uh, to become an academy and join a mat. It makes sense because, as Sam said, you know, ideally you would want all schools um, operating under a single regulatory and coherent framework. You'd want clarity of role for um, for local authorities and actually ideally enabling them to do more around wider children's services and well-being. Um, but I think where Sam and I then disagree um, is around the evidence that, the, that, that an, a fully academised system and a system governed by MATS alone will then lead to improved outcomes and close the disadvantage gap. So um, there has been a number of studies and Sam's right, we can't as the research community do this with perfection, but there have been a number of studies by the LSE, by us and EPI, the DfE itself and the Sutton Trust. The LSE was one of the first studies and it found that there was an impact in attainment, particularly for disadvantaged pupils, in the pre-2010 sponsored academies. But you'd expect that because you were taking essentially the worst performing schools and aiming to improve them. So there was lots of room for, for those schools to improve. And then post-2010, with the expansion of the academies programme under Michael Gove, um, actually we saw very little, if any, uh, evidence of impact of post-2010 sponsored or converter academies. And so, where, and again, those findings about little difference between academies or MATS and local authorities has been reflected by our research by the DfE and by the Sutton Trust. So then I guess, you know, and then when we look 12 years on, uh since those 2010 reforms the what we see is a widening disadvantage gap uh, particularly in secondary in the early years and more recently in pri uh, primary and that gap was widening before the covid-19 pandemic so it's not just something that has been a disruption as a result of the uh the pandemic um and again, if we think about the widening of that gap, there's no evidence that academies or maps have have closed the gap faster than non uh, academy schools or mitigated against the impact of rising poverty, which um, the data suggests is one of the reasons 
that the, the gap is uh, widening, particularly in recent years. So, so, so in summary, Emma, I think, you know, there are some practical reasons why you'd want to move to a fully academised system, but I'd really guard against the notion that this will lead to improved outcomes um, or closing the gap. It hasn't happened so far. If anything, we're seeing a widening of the gap um, since the expansion of the academies programme. I'm not saying those are linked, but I'm saying that there's no evidence that academies have um, mitigated against the widening of the gap. Um, and I also think we need to be a bit pragmatic and realistic about the knotty issues that come with moving to a fully academised system, some of which Sam alluded to. So, you know, we're still seeing parental objections to uh, sc local schools becoming academies. We're seeing that in Holland Park, for example. We're still seeing um, big, you know, really knotty debates about um, local governance and local governing bodies and a resistance from some that local governing bodies shouldn't have any um, uh, legal say in the running of local schools. We're seeing debates around which maps should be expanded. I don't think any of us can say hand on heart here what is a good map or name a good map that's inclusive, that has good attainment, that has good progress, that doesn't burn out their workforce and that is financially healthy. Um, and then we've seen again recently it's opened up the debate around selective schools and you know grammar schools being um, reticent to join maps because they see it as a way of watering down potentially their um, uh, their ethos, but essentially their admissions. Um, so we can't we can't pretend that this is going to fix everything and not create a new set of problems. So my stuff, my premise is actually, you know. There are so many more important things that the government needs to be focusing on, not least the increase in child poverty. There's very little, if anything, in the rest of the white paper to tackle those systemic issues. And, you know, the IFG paper pointed to uh, a the, the report on the DfE last year uh, pointed to a department that isn't working great. And so if it's going to prioritise what precious resource it has, it needs to prioritise it on the things that are evidence based, not where we continue to have a hunch about what might or might not work. Thank you, Natalie. Um, that was you know, really critical points and there are a lot. There's lots there that I want to come back to and um, in questions, not least around kind of parental and school objections, the issue of outcomes and that kind of wider, the wider system in which schools operate. And um, before that, I'm going to come to Joe. Uh, Joe, I, I think you've been a bit of a sceptic about total academisation um, and have talked a lot about a mixed system. And um, so really keen to hear your thoughts on the white paper announcements on academies and the arguments uh, made so far by Sam and Natalie. You're just you're on mute, Joe. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Sam and Natalie as well. I, I want to uh, say up front, I'm not anti-academies. I see a big way works with trust in all sorts of ways, 
and I spent last year working in a terrific trust in Tower Hamlet, uh, the Letter Trust. What I observed there as well as the trust being very effective was a web of really important different relationships with all sorts of local, uh, different, different local alliances, teaching school alliances, local authorities and so on. So it wasn't just the trust that was affected, it was all sorts of relationships and collaborative relationships and that, that, that has informed my thinking around this. Uh, the second thing I want to say is there's loads to like in the white paper, particularly the Fed review as well. Uh, one really good thing about it is it's very upfront about the failures of the last 12 years, and you don't often get that in white papers, so that's particularly good. And there's loads of good stuff in Sam's paper as well that I may or may not be able to have time to cover with you. But I'm really aware that this is an institute for government event, which is the home of good policy making, and I want to frame my thinking more broadly. Uh, there's all sorts of frameworks around, you know, what makes good policy. But I guess there's three things I noticed uh, in terms of the attempt, the attempt at what I would call rapid mathization. Policy, policy making 101, if you like. Uh, first of all, this is just not a policy that is informed by evidence. Uh, uh, if I was a civil servant having to kind of peddle some of the lines around the attack of the academy to make my case, frankly, I'd be a little bit embarrassed. Uh, I think the Education Endowment Foundation should be all over this in terms of really working out whether what government says around the evidence really does really does stack up and uh, as school leaders should expect more from government in terms of modeling evidence-based policy making secondly uh, i don't think they've done enough to really understand the demand side why schools are reluctant to do this rather than just assume some kind of stubborn recalcitrant really understand why school the kind of evidence-based rationale for why schools may not want to become academies or join maths and third, and I guess this is implementation 101, don't necessarily throw good money after bad. Just for halfway through a job doesn't mean we need to finish a job. And in this process, we need to ask some serious value for money questions uh, around academisation, which I think is more nuanced around small trusts being inefficient and large trusts being efficient. I think there's some other value for money questions around this. The 2010 white paper to grow academies was, I think, an exercise in hunch-based policy making. Although it was a bit confused, for instance, about whether autonomy was a route to success or a reward for success, that was maybe just about okay for an incumbent government. But we're 12 years on now, and this is a government that has now held the education reins for nearly as long as New Labour did. And it feels to me that the new drive to mathization is just another exercise in hunch-based policy making, and one that doesn't appear to want to build any kind of robust evidence base to inform the process. That's quite depressing to me, 12 years old. The autonomy philosophy has just about gone, but it has been replaced by a collaboration philosophy that is equally confused, namely whether collaboration should be encouraged or mandated within the system. Uh, in addition, uh, I think there's a real mismatch between the centralising thrust of this policy and possibly the white paper more generally and the principles of the levelling up policy uh, regime. Uh, I think actually the now is a moment for radical devolution of education, uh, and maybe we'll talk about that later. Uh, so, what's my answer? And a few, a, a few responses here. Uh, first of all, I think rather than force the pace of academisation, I think we need to go with the grade of a school system that, yes, it's plural and diverse, but it's not necessarily fragmented. We've always had a diverse school system with a range of independent, state and local authority schools. Some of whom rely heavily on local authority support and some of whom access and offer other support more autonomously. The problem to me that we need to solve is a system that appears to, unable to build sufficient capacity for school improvement, 
and coordinate or allocate this capacity effectively so that the right schools receive the right support at the same time. Uh, maybe academisation will help with that a little bit, but for me the challenge is to make the most of this patchwork so that no school is left behind, informed by academy agnostic evidence on the effectiveness of different partnerships and improvement models. I think the EPI is doing great work on this, CFEY is about to do some more work on different forms of school partnerships and collaborations that inform improvement. Uh, a quick response to some of Sam's ideas. Uh, first of all, definitely give individual schools the right to exit an academy sponsor with decent process and timescales. I think that's so important. Secondly, I think uh, the, a single regulator for academies is really important within this. Uh, uh, and I think I, I think that, that there's, there's a validity in that and how it's done. Clearly, the definitely will be in the detail, but I think there's a, there's a strong rationale for that, even if the number of academies doesn't grow. Uh, I would go much, much further, possibly even than Sam, uh, in terms of uh, local authority oversight. Actually, it's to some extent, regardless of whether it runs from schools or not, I would, I would make sure that, uh, in a way, I, I would make local authorities or groups of local authorities the contractor, the procurer, rather than DfE. All that oversight, hire and fire powers, I'm not sure why DfE needs to do it. I think I, I, can, I can see actual local authorities or groups of local authorities doing that instead of the Department for Education. Uh, there's also, I think, quite a lot we could do around local partnership boards and about thinking again about children's trust within this model so that the vulnerable children are, are supported more, uh, in various ways and that and others could, could, really, could really enable that to happen. Uh, but back to thinking around good policy making, uh, I think there's three things that for a good policy to succeed in terms of getting buy-in and in terms of implementation. I think it needs legitimacy, it needs leverage, and it needs love. And I think academisation is forced, what we call rapid mathization, lacks all of these. Uh, my prediction is the pace of academisation won't actually pick up much at all in the next couple of years. But the attempt to force the pace could still waste a hell of a lot of time that civil servants, governors, and school leaders could be doing much, much better things with. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Joe. And some really important points there on issues like collaboration, kind of radical devolution, and whether it is ultimately better to go with the grain of what schools want um, in either direction. And um, Sam, I wanted to come back to you on a few points raised by Natalie and Joe. And um, first of all, the kind of question of the evidence base for some of these proposals and the link to outcomes. And um, you know, Natalie said that she is sceptical about the idea that the MAP model alone will improve outcomes. How confident are you that these changes will improve outcomes and start closing the advantage gap that you know, as we've heard is growing there's two points i wanted to make firstly I, I agree with natalie i don't think this these map changes by themselves are going to dramatically improve um, education or close the gap i do think they create the conditions for doing that um, in that it will be much easier to do other policies within a single coherent national system than it is at the moment um, if i wanted to do a reading initiative that was closely based on um, on, on the best available evidence at the moment, I've got to design two different models, one which fits with a MAT system whereby, which is set up in a completely odd legal structure that doesn't really allow me to do, to, 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 to get them to do anything, one through a local authority system that's declining in terms of resources and and um, and capability. Uh, it it, it may, having a weak structure to the system makes it harder to do any of the policies, any of the other policies that any of us might think are evidence-based or a good idea. Um, 
the the second point is on the nature of evidence in education uh, we i'm a big fan of evidence in education obviously as is, as i imagine nearly everybody is on this call um we have uh, a big big supporter of uh, of natalie's organization epi and, and of the education endowment foundation but the fact is most of the strong evidence we have in education is about school level intervention it's about pedagogy it's about things like tuition and so on um when it gets to the macro level uh, we have very little evidence about anything in education um, because governments don't tend to set up national level structural policies in a way that allows allows us to collect good evidence. Um, and uh, if we follow the principle that we should only do things for which there is strong evidence, we are never going to do macro level policy because there is never very strong evidence for it. And actually, then Joe, Joe after criticising um, the lack of evidence for this, said we should have radical devolution. But there's no evidence for radical devolution either. Like there's no evidence for any of these models. Um, because there isn't any evidence for any sort of macro structural model but that doesn't mean we can't have theorizing about what would what what what, what logically makes sense um uh, and ideally in a future world set up macro policy in a way that allows us to collect better evidence but i don't think that can be enough to say we shouldn't do anything because i don't want the dfe to be doing kind of school level intervention um uh, it's not really their job and i don't want them sitting doing absolutely nothing um, so we should be, we should, we have to allow um, uh, uh, sort of theory-based models of, of improvement. We can then debate what, you know, we can debate that theory. Would radical de devolution look better than an all-mat system? But I think we have to be, give ourselves a space to have that conversation. Great, thank you. Um, one of the other points I wanted to raise was around regulation. Um, this came up in various comments. So one of the criticisms of academies have been that they're hard to hold to account, even when they're underperforming, which is something that you've written about too, Sam. The proposed approach in the white paper, this single regulatory approach, um, can you say a little bit more about what this means and whether you think it's enough? Um, we don't know very much about it yet, to be perfectly honest. They haven't set out much detail. My guess is what we will end up with is um, what is the current regional directorate within the Department for Education will become a regulator, which is not really at the moment, um, and become responsible for the, um, the oversight of the standards that are at a very high level set out in the white paper. I think, uh, I think there are some real questions about who it is who's doing the oversight, how that oversight is done, um, and whether it should be independent from the department. I would definitely prefer it to be independent from the department. I don't think they will will go down that route. Um, I think all of I think um, independence would definitely strengthen it. Um, but even if it was even if you did do that, there's still a difficult balance to get between um, uh, quality assuring Matt's own kind of assessment of what they're doing versus a sort of more in-depth model of regulation that starts to resemble Ofsted. And I don't think we want to go down the route of building a second Ofsted. So I think there's some really tricky implementation questions that they haven't yet really said very much about. Thank you. I wanted to come back to all of you on the question of, of resistance. And Natalie, you talked about some of the kind of knotty issues um, in delivering this. And Joe, you talked about um, you know the importance of going with the grain of what schools actually want. Um, I think we can kind of take as a given that there's likely to be some resistance from schools and indeed from parents as we move to a model of, of kind of total academization. But given that's the direction that we do appear to be moving in um, under government proposals, what more can be done to engage with schools and parents who are wary of the academisation model? Who wants to come in first on that? Sorry. I'm happy to come in on that, Emma, but can I just come back to a couple of points that Sam raised? Firstly, I don't think, you know, 
I agree with the principle that a single framework is uh, is better, it's optimal, but I don't think it's prevented the government from implementing particular initiatives. I think Nick Gibb would argue that phonics, for example, has been implemented very well, um, despite having a fragmented system. Um, and secondly, I also agree with Sam in the, on the principle that sometimes you know, government and civil servants do have to do reform even without waiting for the evidence. My argument is we've got evidence of other things that will make, uh, that will have an improvement on outcomes. We have limited resource. So the resource should be prioritised where you do have the evidence rather than where you don't. So then coming back to your question, Emma, on um, how do we or how does the government um, get people and particularly parents on board? I think there has to be some kind of myth busting exercise. I think, you know, the, the there is still a view amongst some that academies are represent the privatisation of the education system, that it, they're very corporate. Maybe they can be quite corporate or quite centralised, but actually um, a lot of the maps that I've worked with um, aren't and, and they, you know, they do operate a very localised uh, democratic model. Um, so I think that there's a real communications effort for both government and MAT leaders as well, particularly where you have a big chain in um, a local area. I think they need to do better at, at, at convincing parents what they are and what they aren't. That's really helpful. Thank you. Joe, did you want to come in? You're on mute, Joe. Am I there now? You are. Uh, now. Yeah, you're, yeah, we can hear okay, you. Okay, great. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some reality. There's some realities in this as well. Uh, if uh, it's called try before you buy, the idea of becoming an academy, but it's actually try before you acquire. Uh, because of the school you lose your legal status. So if parents are worried about, you know, whether the school has any level of autonomy, regardless of what delegation schemes or, 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 or schemes of delegation look like, that can be taken away overnight from a department of a single organisation. And that, that at the moment, that can't really change. So that's not myth-busting, that's just the reality of it. Uh, I, I, at the same time, and this is where I may contradict myself, I think actually academisation might become a, a route to genuine devolution. And just responding to Sam's point, I do agree, but at the same time, we know that successful school systems around the world appear to be generally a little bit smaller than England. And I do wonder when you look at London Challenge and so on, whether that medical devolution might enable much smaller units to be much, much more, much, much more uh, successful. But I also think relating to that, parents do and, and teachers and schools want some type of local democratic accountability around this. Academisation is not privatisation, but it is a kind of form of outsourcing, really, and maybe it's useful to see it as a form of outsourcing. Uh, and uh, if uh, if my local services are outsourced, then I want to be able to contact my local authority to see whether those the people running those services are the best people. I don't really want to have to deal with a national government to make those decisions. And I think actually local devolution, 
proper local devolution might make academisation more appealing. Thank you, Sam. Um, I think the number of local sort of protests against maths is pretty low and 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 it, and it tends to be in highly educated urban areas um, which are uh, of a particular nature. I mean, Holland Park, we've got one in Greenwich at the moment that's going on. I think both United Learning, I think it's the same trust, lucky them. Um, but um, but actually we've had. What now close to um, 10,000 conversions and there's been I could probably count the number of serious parental campaigns on, 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 well, at least my hands and feet, if not just my hands. So I don't think it's going to be a major barrier. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is one of the things in the white paper, which I didn't actually suggest in my paper, is that the, um, as they've said, when, once a local authority wants to academise all the schools in its area, it, they will take the power to then essentially compel all schools in that area. So if the local authority agree, all schools will be compelled. Um, and I think at the same time, they've said that local authorities will be allowed to run trusts again with very limited information about what that will actually look like. But what I think they're trying to do essentially is to bribe local authorities into agreeing to academise all their schools so that they can become a trust. Um, so I actually disagree with something Joe said earlier, which I don't think we're going to see much progress for a couple of years. I think we're going to see quite quick progress. I think you've already got some very big local authorities drumming at the door saying, OK, let's go. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be quite dramatic quite quickly. And if you've got the local authority as well as the national government on board with a more co coherent local plan for getting everybody into a trust, I think that will there will be limited parental opposition. I want to come on now to the role of local authorities that we're already starting to touch on it a lot and their role is changing under these proposals. Sam, you describe them as being in limbo um, at the moment under these proposals and you know, they're envisaged as a kind of systems leader and as you've said, can set up academy trust themselves in some circumstances. What do the panel think is the right role for local authorities in the school system? Natalie, I'm going to pick on you first. Emma. Um, so I think that um, there is uh, opportunity here for there to be a, a, a much more clarified role for local authorities and as I mentioned um, particularly around supporting children in the wider sense so I think admissions is a really important function that local authorities can um, take the helm on also um, uh, send uh, special educational needs and uh, place planning and um, the kind of um, allocation of pupils in like non-normal transition times as well. So if you have a pupil that's been excluded from one school, then working with the local schools to make sure that they have an appropriate place in a different school. Um, and also in relation to uh, safeguarding and um, kind of wider, um, I'm not sure pastoral is the, is the right word, but the kind of wider needs of children. Um, and I think they don't have either the, well, they don't have both the capacity or the, um, the, the kind of autonomy to to crack on and do some of those things while the responsibilities are so blurred. So I definitely think there's an opportunity here 
um, to um, to clarify that role of local authorities and to really beef it up actually in those respects. Thank you. Uh, Sam. Yeah, I pretty much agree with, with what Natalie said. I don't have a huge amount to add. I think that they, they, they should be um, I've also they should be holding the ring on the rights for children in their area, which uh, involves, um, yes, having powers around things like admission, special educational needs, um, exclusions, stronger powers than they have at the moment and probably going further than the white paper goes as well. I think they should have oversight powers over um, over trusts in the same way they do over NHS trusts um, uh, so that they can. There is a level of local accountability um, to um, and uh, they should have a lot more resource than they do to, to particularly to fill the first of those two two functions. They've been uh, cut pretty savagely, and 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 I think because so much of that ability to support at a pastoral level has been taken away from them, that's put a huge amount of pressure on schools, which schools aren't particularly well set up to deal with either. So yes, I broadly, I think broadly on the same page as, as Natalie there. Thank you, Joe. Did you want to come in on this? Yeah, I'm, I always find it interesting when people talk about academy trusts being good, they always use the word strong. It's a really interesting word kind of linguistically. Why strong? People don't talk about NHS trusts being strong or primary care networks being strong. And it implies a level of kind of command and control. Why don't we just use the word effective, good rather than strong? The reason I think that's important for local authorities is actually I think we do need local authorities to be that word strong as champion of children. Uh, I agree with everything uh, Natalie and Sam have said, but I would take it even further, as I've mentioned, I would give local authorities uh, the kind of hiring and firing powers over academy trusts within their locality. I would, I, I see no rationale for DfE to do that, rather than local authorities or groups of local authorities, for instance, Greater Manchester could take that on, on, on behalf of a region, on behalf of a, a number of local authorities. Uh, I also think in terms of the most vulnerable children, it could do a lot more uh, locally, and that's where I think the Children's Trust model that I think was kind of slightly slight kind of baby out with Bathwater in 2010. I think that it's worth returning to that and seeing whether that, that's viable at a local level. Great, thank you. I'm going to, I'm aware that we've got a bit under 20 minutes left now, so I'm going to start turning to some questions from the audience. Um, so obviously lots um, focused on the kind of uh, the map model. Uh, Jeremy asks, my experience shows that the administrative burden of being part of a MAT um, is greater than uh, with a local authority, which can detract from teaching and learning. How can we ensure that this wider reporting burden um, is optimised? Sam, I'm going to come to you on that one. Um, I mean, I think that Firstly, this will differ between different mats, obviously, because they'll have different approaches. So I don't know how um, commonplace that experience um, is. Secondly, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. It depends what they're asking for in terms of reporting. It might be if it's rubbish information that's no use, then absolutely it's a waste of time. And um, uh, and I think uh, you know, as part of a as part of a standards based regulatory approach, if if mats are collecting loads of useless information that should come out um, but if it's actually useful information that can be used to to drive um, school improvement um, etc then uh, it, it might be worth doing even if it's a pain in the neck for the person having to do it so uh, without knowing more detail about the specific mat it's hard to comment but I think there is an issue that we've all a broader issue that I, I don't know if it's relevant in this case, but but the 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 Joe mentioned as well about this ability for a school if they are not happy with the mat to exit. And I think for me that is you do have situations where there are very good schools 
uh, feeling very constrained by not very good maths, which is why I think it's really important that you do have that bottom up me method of accountability as well as the top down method of accountability. Thank you. Unless um, any of the other panel members want to come in on that question. Um, somebody else asks about free schools. We haven't mentioned these yet. Um, where do free schools fit into all of this? Aren't they in effect a third, a third force in the school system? Who wants to come in first on this? Natalie? Yeah, I mean, preschools are a type of academy. So um, I were, I mean, the, the white paper isn't massively clear about this, but I would envisage that if they want, if the primary aim is all schools to be in, in academies, well, preschools are already an academy. And then the secondary uh, objective is all schools or all academies to be part of a mat, then the question is, how do you get standalone preschools to um, to join a mat? And then there'll be, you know, a, a debate or discussion to be had about how the ethos of the preschool fits within whatever option of mat they have available to them to join. I don't think it's a massive issue maybe I'm underestimating it but I think free schools are probably in a way the easiest of the schools to uh, to move into the map model. Joe. Yeah I think uh, free schools are if you like the wrong answer to the right question the right question is how do you make create a system that really creates space for seriously disciplined innovation whether it's over pedagogy, whether it's over teacher development or whether it's over uh, other forms of innovation. Uh, and I think you need to do that across the school system, whether it's within academies, within maintained schools, you need to create that space and resource that properly. I don't think school schools are the answer to that. If they have, they, they failed largely. Great, thank you. Uh, Sam, did you want to come in? Only to say I don't think free schools really exist anymore, except in name. I mean, they started very innovative. There were some really interesting ones that got set up. That hasn't happened for a while now. Um, they've made the process so complicated and so difficult and they do it so rarely that that's not happening. And it's essentially a way for Matt's to open new new schools, which is fine and would be perfectly allowed under this policy, but it's not the same as the original policy. Uh, um, another viewer is asking about evidence, something that we've talked a lot about. Um, and the lack of evidence. What evidence do you think should be collected and published to evaluate the policy of academisation? Sam, I'm going to come um, straight to you on this one. At this stage, it's almost impossible, right? Because we, we've already got so many schools that are academies. Um, what I would love to have done is, with so many policies, including this one, is to have trialled it in different parts of the country and and collected to do proper control studies on this stuff but that just doesn't happen in, in with macro policy um so um it's very difficult at this stage to collect any data that's going to allow us to make any assessments about whether academization is better than any other structural model um i think what we 
should do is be very transparent around assessments of maths. So I think that if we're going to have this new regulator who's going to be making assessments around a set of transparent criteria, those assessments need to be public. Because one of the problems at the moment is the whole system around commissioning and regulation is incredibly opaque and we have no real information. We have information at the school level and you can aggregate that up, but we have no real information about what maths are doing themselves. So I think there's an opportunity for transparency and there's an opportunity for oversight. I don't think we're ever going to get to a position where we can have a study that fairly conclusively says one way or another the structure's worked and this hasn't. Jay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with Sam, but I think there's still some kind of quasi experimentation, if you like, you can do. Hull has now only got two schools that are for local authorities at that point, when if Hull is the first to move, so uh, is there something you can do within Hull that really tests that model? Uh, I also think, for example, in terms of the small maps, I think there may be models where small maps can collaborate very in a hard way without necessarily merging into larger maps. Again, that's something that you could possibly, you could possibly test. More important than that, uh, there's a lot of capturing of practice that happens all the time within our system. Uh, and any capturing of practice that just looks at math practice, I think is a politicised waste of time. And that happens all the time. Ofsted did their own study of what was happening in math uh, during the pandemic. Why didn't they look across the system more widely? And then why did MAP supporters use that to somehow argue that MAPs were, had, had, had offered a more effective response to the pandemic than other schools? As I said, that type of uh, specific capturing of practice that is MAP favourable is, is a, is a politicised work as well. Thank you. There are a lot of... Natalie, did you want to come in? Yeah, just very briefly on um, the point about evidence of maths. I think um, we are moving away from what is a better model, a math or a local authority structure, and actually moving into what makes an effective group of schools or an effective governance model. One of the things, well, a big programme of work we, we're doing in EPI is looking at effectiveness under the domains I mentioned earlier. So not only looking at attainment and progress, but also looking at how well a mat, for example, performs on inclusion. So how well it represents the local community, um, how well it um, trains and develops and retains its teachers and doesn't burn them out to the point that they leave the profession entirely and then how financially healthy and efficient it is. So that ought to give us a better understanding of how groups of schools are performing against the metrics that really matter um, and then enable us to compare performance um, of groups with uh, uh, across one another, rather than try to have this very simplistic debate about whether a mat is better than a local authority. Thank you. One of the other areas that's coming up a lot in questions is the question of trust. Um, a lot of this is about trust between the Department for Education and schools, governors and teachers. How much of that trust was lost during the pandemic and how can it be regained? Jay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's an interesting one, and I and I experience this within schools. You know, teaching in year four, doing curriculum design, doing all sorts of things within schools last year. Uh, 
Because I, I mean, personally, I had I gave Department of Education a lot of the benefit of the doubt. We were making things up as we went along to some extent. I think the mistakes they made were pre-pandemic more than during pandemic. Uh, they could have prepared us for this. Pandemic was on their risk register to some extent. They did nothing really to prepare. And what happened during the pandemic was the result of things that had gone wrong around vulnerable children already. It wasn't about what they did. Uh, I also think that some of the best work uh, that happened in, in it during the pandemic was because DfE and the accountability me mechanisms got out of the way a little bit, and actually that enabled all sorts of interesting practices to emerge. Uh, how do we restore trust? It's a really good question. Uh, I, I would just I would just say that in terms of the white paper, I'm not quite sure if it's going to get us there. Uh, teacher retention is a really important kind of indicator of trust, I would say. But I think the send review is actually pointing in a different, much more pragmatic, less politicised direction in terms of restoring trust around the support for the most uh, for children with special education needs. Thank you. And uh, Natalie. I think uh, Emma trust has to work both ways, doesn't it? So again, going back to that IFG report on the DFE last summer, um, one of the findings or conclusions was that in the DFE there was a refusal over the pandemic, a refusal to trust and engage with local authorities. Trust has to work both ways and it has to be earned. So in the context of the department doing several U-turns, not least on exams, even when they were told by professionals working in the sector to take a different direction, they didn't listen, they ended up U-turning. They, um, they didn't make contingency plans when they were being told by the sector to make contingency plans. And they were issuing reams and reams of guidance late at night that were being iterated constantly creating um you know relentless workload for teachers and leaders so how is it unsurprising that the sector lost trust in the government when it wasn't earned during the pandemic thank you and sam yeah i think i mean i agree with all of that uh, I think Joe's being a bit generous. They made plenty of mistakes during the pandemic as well. Um, but um, the the I think one thing that kind of illustrates the point I was making earlier about the problems that the system causes around wider policy. Um, it, when they were trying to do things like get laptops to to, to kids who needed them or, or get food to kids who needed it, they 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 struggled with having a lack of a system to do that through. So they didn't trust local authorities to do it. They didn't trust trust to do it because they're not strong enough yet and not consistent enough. So they kind of tried to do it themselves and made a bit of a hash of it in both cases, or they tried to do it through national procurements at least and made a bit of a hash of it. Um, so I, I, I kind of hope this white paper will get us to a world in which they could have had a clear route to doing some of that stuff that wouldn't have involved doing it themselves. And I think that would have actually made it easier for them uh, to deal with some of the, some of the problems uh, that, that arose. Thank you. So we've got about five minutes left. There are a few more questions that I want to ask. Um, one is about the rest of the white paper. Uh, so what hit the spot and what missed elsewhere? Natalie, you've written about schools not operating in isolation. You've already mentioned that in the event as well. Did the white paper do as much about the rest of the system as it should have? No, that's an emphatic no for me, Emma. Um, 
I, I would have wanted to see more on early years, for example, um, more. And, and again, I know it was a school's white paper, but as you say, schools don't operate in isolation. We know that one of the big problems driving the disadvantage gap is the persistence and increase in child poverty. Um, I would have liked to see um, a bigger effort to work with other departments to really tackle those causes of child poverty, because that will make much more effective gains, I think, to improving equality and closing the gap. Thank you. And Sam, what did you make of the, the rest of the white paper? I mean, as I said at the beginning, there's nothing there. I mean, it's 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 um, there's some stuff that we already knew about. There's there's some gimmicks like um, this parent pledge, which doesn't really change anything. Thirty two and a half hours for a week for schools, which doesn't really change anything. There's nothing in there that's going to make a substantive difference to anything. Um, and it's partly because they've got no money. Um, but it's also, I think they've completely lost the, the, their narrative thread. I, I don't, I don't think they know what they're trying to do at the moment. Um, uh, I think Gove did. I think Gibb did. I think we've had a bunch of different secretaries of state, some of them better than others, all in quick succession, and none of them have had a chance to kind of develop their own story about what they're trying to do. And that was really evident in in, in the white paper. I, I mean, personally, I wanted to go back to being about disadvantage again, and certainly areas would play a part in that. People premium would play a part in that. Um, there's lots of different policies that could play a part in that, but but at the moment, it it, it was a sort of very thin um, thin document. Thank you. And, and Joe, is there anything you want to add on on the kind of the wider the wider white paper? Uh, I agree with the missing bits. I agree with the lack of narrative. Although I've got to say, the opposition's lack of narrative is also there within this. I think the opposition, the opposition in various ways, have not have not yet got a coherent narrative to, uh, uh, as an alternative. Uh, I would like some thinking, not necessarily action, but thinking around assessment and accountability. Uh, I think, again, it assumes that what we have there is OK and it's not OK. And then I thank you. I really want, I want to end on this point on on narrative thread. Um, Sam, you know, you say they've lost the narrative thread, that there have been lots of secretaries of state, of state in relatively quick succession. How much of a priority is this agenda for government? Um, you know, when Gove was in DfE, no matter what you think of the merit of his proposals, he was clearly a passionate leader about these issues. Um, does the department have that same leadership now? And where is the prime minister on this? Um, does this need an engaged prime minister to succeed? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Nadim Zahawi could potentially be a good secretary. I don't think he's been there very long, so I don't think we, we know yet. And I don't think he's had a chance to sort of, he's never, he was briefly in the department before, but really has never had a chance to form a, a sort of proper agenda or a vision in the way that Gove did for three years in opposition before coming into, into the role. Um, so I just think he had to do this very early in his time. I mean, I think Gavin Williamson was terrible, so he didn't, he's also taking over from a, from a very weak period in the department's history. And I do think he's, he, you've got a prime minister who really, isn't interested in this issue as he isn't interested in most policy issues um and a treasury that is unusual i mean treasury is always hostile but an unusually hostile treasury to, to the idea of spending on public services and um, particularly education so it's a quite difficult environment for the department for education to operate not getting a lot of support from number 10 not getting a lot of support from the treasury with a leader who's not been imposed very long it's not really surprising that they're struggling a bit with narrative at the moment 
Thank you, Joe. I'm going to come to you now. Yeah, uh, making narrative doesn't matter to some extent. Uh, maybe uh, I always think you know there's a Hippocratic oath for, for for doctors. There should always be a Hippocratic oath for, for civil servants and politicians, which is waste no time rather than do no harm. And maybe what government needs to do here is first of all create space for other visions for education to emerge and grow, whether it's in trust, individual schools, local authorities, the creation of that space rather than imposing and imposing a vision. But secondly, making sure anything you do, whether it's guidance about uh, political bias or whether it's about academisation, doesn't waste any time because time is the most precious resource we have within our school system. Thank you. And Natalie, you're going to get the final word. Thanks, Emma. I mean, I agree with Sam. The department's in a really difficult position because of wider politics. I th but I think that it varies within the department. If you talk to Baroness Barron, who's the minister for the school system, she has a very clear narrative and she's very, you know, she's really getting underneath the bonnet of her brief and going out, talking to Matt's and talking to local authorities um, and system leaders. Um, if you talk to Nadim Zahawi, he has a good reputation. He talks, he says the right things about how he values evidence in the early years. It's just not cutting through yet, though. And I mean, yes, it's still early days, but, you know, there is a big opportunity here for him to have that cut through and he didn't quite do it. Thank you. Um, I'm afraid I am going to have to draw the event to a close now, despite having lots more questions to ask. Um, it was an absolutely excellent discussion. There seemed to be consensus on what was uh, missing from the white paper, a uh, difference of views on the kind of value of total academisation, but lots of agreement on the need for more clarity and information on things around regulation, the role of local authorities and so on. Um, many thanks to Sam, Natalie and Joe for making that such a, a rich and lively discussion. Um, thank you to everybody who watched online and sent in questions. Sorry that I couldn't get through all of them. Uh, we are going to be keeping an eye on what happens to the proposals in the white paper. Um, so please do uh, keep on checking uh, what the Institute is saying on this. Um, we're on www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk or of course you can find us on Twitter. Um, again, thanks for, thanks for watching and participating and have a great day everyone. <laughs>